Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. I can feel the energy. Like we're about to open the Word of God. The Almighty God who made us, who created us, who knit you in your mother's womb, who sent us in to die on the cross, in times old spoke up by his prophets, today is spoken by his Son through the Word of God that Hebrews tells us is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the vision of soul of spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. 2 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is written by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness. You know why? That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Like, you want to know what God wants of you? It's here. We're about to open the word from the living God. Nothing is more important that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You go to the next slide. And we're going to look at this passage. I know what you're thinking. Do not cook a young goat in the milk of its mother. I know you're thinking... If I had a dime for every time this was in his pastor's sermon. <laughs> Do not boil a young goat, right? That's the actual term is boil, not go- cook, in its mother's milk. This is found in three different passages, and they're all in the law. They're all what God provided to Moses in the law. Now understand that the law was God setting apart his people from all other nations. That's what the law did in how they behaved, in how they worshipped, in how they lived, in how they treated each other. Like This was God setting apart his people to maximize their worship of him, but also to maximize their distinctness. Next slide. If we look at Leviticus 11, 44, 45, as God's giving the law, he says, right, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Because I am your Lord, I am your God, You will be holy because I'm holy. God says, because I am unique, distinct, different, right? Set apart, separateness. Because I am like no other God, and you are my people, you will be like no other people. That's what holiness means, right? Like there's an element in which... It's 
purity without sin because that's who God is. But it's really, as one writer wrote, the conjunction of his attributes. It's all that God is, is set apart and distinct and different from any other God. And he says to his people, because that's the way I am, that's the way you will be. You will be holy. You will be set apart. You will be distinct. Because I am like no other. I am set apart and distinct. Now, God lays out these distinctions, right? And that's part of how he builds his people. But you know, we have a war going on against these distinctions that God has set forth. Right? Go to the next slide. Right? So it's kind of rooted in the 60s thought, right, that any behavior is tolerated and okay as long as no one is hurt. And we've kind of adopted that, unfortunately, right? But holiness is very important to God. It's essential to God's people's lifestyles and witness to the world. There's a war going on against every God-given distinction. The distinctiveness that God intends for his people. Those basic distinctions that set God's people apart from the world. The first one is the God-man distinction. All right, thank you. I'll quit checking, make sure they're following. See, God is distinct from man. Right? God is beyond time, space, right? God always was, always is, always will be, but man, woman, right, are people, human, you know, humanity are created beings. See, Pharaoh was considered to be a god. They didn't have that distinction between God and man, right? And, and, you know, New Age thinking like we're all gods. You know, now writers are claiming that we and God are one. Right? There's this really, you know, there's this guy by the name of Richard War, Right? And, and he has this thing called the universal Christ. And he separates Jesus from Christ. He says Jesus was a time and space person. Right? Christ is like all around. It's a concept. Right? Like the number one for a long time writer, book on Amazon for Christian spirituality was the universal Christ. This is what people are reading in your church, in your families. Right? They're losing that distinction between God and man. Then there's nature, right? Like everything in nature is God and worshipped, right? God and nature are separate. They're distinct. Colossians 1 says, tells us he's outside and in control of nature. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things are cre- were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God and nature are not the same. They're distinct. In John 1, Christ was involved in the creation work. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
See, the plagues, right, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, the plagues were to show that God was outside of nature, and there were no nature gods. God and nature, God and man are distinct. There is a holiness element at the heart of this distinction. The second distinction in which there is a war is the male-female distinction. Like it's like androgyny, right? They're blurred, right? God was clear with his people. Men are not to act like women. Women are not to act like men. They're not to dress. Men are not to dress like women. Like it can't be any clearer. There's a breakdown of distinctions between sexes. And the intent of this breakdown is to eliminate God from the picture. Make no mistake about it. It's an attack on our created order and God's design. And it is an attack. Look at what is being taught in the schools, promoted by media. What the university is teaching your teachers. Promoted by media, celebrated behind a rainbow flag. The Bible clearly says homosexuality is sin, and we need to say it. It's immorality. It's an abomination. Transgender is sin. It's sexual immorality. The world needs that differentness. It needs that distinction. We need to say it. I was part of a task force that looked at a number, through a number of ministries, was trying to understand how to navigate the legal changes through the you know, Supreme Court uh, making um, same-sex marriage legal, through some of the other rights. How do you navigate your f- living out your faith in a ministry when the law tells you to do something contrary to the word of God. And in the course of that time, out of an obligation in the task force, like out of a, out of a, number, a numerous list of books, I had to read three books. And that whole list of books was people writing as, and I'm not going to do air quotes, right, as Christians saying that homosexuality Sexuality was permitted by God. Man, that's not what the word of God says. And we need to call that out because it is different. It is a distinction. And it's also destructive. Someone who argues against the the distinction of male and female actually argues against relational intimacy. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The third distinction that, we're, that is under attack and we're at war in this distinction is the good-evil distinction. Like an age of moral relativism an, or the equivalent is actually an age of immorality. I, I remember Timothy McVeigh and his bombing of Oklahoma City and uh, there was a discussion over the death penalty at that point. And it was just absolutely fascinating. Columnists and opinion writers were writing, his acts were not 
evil because they were political in nature. Man, children would not see their parents. Parents would not see their children. That's evil. And we need to maintain, like, this distinction separates God and his people from the world. Good versus evil. When nothing is right or wrong at any given time, then evil is left without definition. And that's where we are. We have lost any moral grounding. Like, why are some things wrong, you ask somebody? Well, it's just wrong. We know it's wrong, right? It's like, well, why? Well, the moral grounding, right, is the word of God. What is the basis for saying, right? And we don't have a moral code. What is the basis for saying something's evil or something's good without a moral code? Everything is justified by the moment or the cause. And I'm telling you, like, parenting, (laughs) parenting, parenting is addressing, dealing, teaching good and evil. That's what parenting is. Like, think about this. In Ephesians 5, right, Paul says, Everyone be subject to one another in love. Okay, so everybody be subject to one another, right? That's his instruction to the church. And then he gives several examples. Wives, be subject to your husbands. But then he tells husbands to be subject to their wives, right? Like, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Right? That's submitting what you may want to do to what you know Christ would have you do with your wife. And then he comes to children. Now, you know, God says, honor your father and mother. That's an address to children. That's an address to all of us. To children specifically, God gives one command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's what you and parents are to need to be teaching your children. Obedience to what is right and good. And, ch- and chastise, correct, disobedience to that which is evil and wrong. <laughs> we had a child in Uvalde, Texas, who had no moral grounding. Like, right after Paul finishes, children obey your parents in the Lord, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Number one admonition, obey your parents. And note, he says it to fathers. It's fathers that he gives the grace and power and instruction to bring their children to obedience. Man, I know mothers have a role. In fact, if you, you I am going to get sidelined, right? Sidetracked. Right. First Timothy 2, right? Like debated passage, crazy passage, right? About the role of women in the church. 
It says, For I, not, I do not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. Okay? Like, right? A lot of churches have, have most churches, I'll say, have thrown that one away. So I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. You know what the number one argument is? That was just cultural. That was their society. That was just, that was old. We're enlightened since Christ. Like, no. Because the reasons Paul gives for that are not cultural. They're not because of Christ. It says, for man was created first. It has to do with creation order. Secondly, it says, for the woman was deceived. It has to do with the fall of man. Those are complicated concepts, but understand it has nothing to do with culture. It's a distinction that God has for his people. It's a distinctive role that God has for men. In Uvalde, Texas, where are the men asserting a moral code? So young men see something to follow or somewhere to turn. For I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Right? For Man was created first, and the woman was deceived. But then it says this. But she, okay, who's she? The woman, shall be saved, delivered, same word. She shall be delivered, saved, through the bearing of children. Well, delivered from what? From the restriction of not teaching or exercise authority over men is in the passage. There's nothing else. It's not salvation. She will be delivered from that restriction on not teaching and exercising the men through the bearing of children. All right, so walk with me slow here, right? Like, she shall be saved for all you that know grammar. She is singular pronoun. Through the bearing of children, if they, plural, so what's plural in the passage? Not the woman, children. But she shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue, right? Faith, hope, love, self-restraint. You know what it's saying? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. A woman is delivered from the restriction of not teaching men because she's already laid the foundation in what she taught them and trained them as children. I didn't even plan to say that. Like, let's keep going. That's the good-evil distinction. That separates God's people from the world. That separates you and me from the world. There's a war. Number four, status of age distinction. Leviticus 19.32 says, Rise up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. And revere your God. I am the Lord. Society battles authority and age. 
but a distinctive that God put in Israel. Something that set them apart. Made them holy like God. In which they revered God is they stood when an elderly person walked in the room. This is a mark of my people. We've we flipped this. I'm telling you, we flipped this distinction. We have participated in losing this distinction. Now it's all about the children. The children go first. We make room for the children. They get in line first. They get their food first. They get what they want first, or they threaten to misbehave. Using terms of respect, Mr. and Mrs., Miss, teach that respect. Uncle or aunt, grandpa or grandma, Lala, whatever they call you. That's actually a term of respect. I'm sorry. But a seven-year-old child should not call you Teresa. A nine-year-old should not call you Loretta. This was a mark of God's people. We must teach our children the distinctive importance of respect for God through our respect for the elderly. The fifth distinction. It's a life-death distinction. The, The Israelites came out of Egypt, and the Egyptians had a view of death, right, that was circular. I mean, like, the pyramids? The pyramids were about making it so that the pharaoh, when he, after he died, could rise the next morning and see the first sunrise. Like that, that's kind of a major theory. The Egyptians' view of life was circular. It was that life, where they come, you come back, right, after life, and it's just circular. God interviewed, inter, God introduced a linear view of history. We're going somewhere. The Israelites were headed to fulfillment of the promises, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, right? It's, God introduced a linear view of history with the Israelites that they're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. As one writer wrote, Time is an island in the sea of eternity. We're on that island going somewhere. The return of the Messiah, heaven waiting for us. God wanted his Israelites to introduce a new view of life, different from death. Right? He wanted to introduce a new way of life that was different from the pagan culture they just left. God has a plan for those with life. His life. The life in his son. God asserts that anything that is associated with, symbolizes death, is to be separate from life. The life-death distinction. Right? He says, 
you have died to your sins, no longer live in them. You have died to your sins, that's death. There's a distinction, don't live in them. Death, life. The two must be kept separate. Leviticus 17.32, you cannot eat anything with blood. The life is in the blood. He remi- this reminded Israel of the life-death distinction. Listen to this passage in Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. See, life distinct from death is God's arranged separateness for his people. It sets us apart. Verse 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects. We were nature, by nature, objects of wrath. But, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. It is by grace you have been saved. We are to keep that which is alive and life-giving separate from that which is dead. It is a distinction of God's people. Right? Like Paul knew, like, don't go back to your former way of life. Because you are not that person. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You are a living being created in Christ. I'm co-crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why go back to your former way of life? There's a distinction that sets God's people apart. Next slide. And that brings us to our verse today. Do not cook a young goat that is dead in the milk of its mother. That's life and life-giving. The life-death distinction. Now, we're talking about holiness. We're talking about being set apart to God. We're talking about the unique differentness we have. That God has, and because we're God's people, we need to have. Well, why are distinctions important to God? God knew that it is difficult to live in a pagan culture and still stay aware of the presence of God. God's holiness laws pointed people back to God. It gave them a way of living set apart from the pagan culture around them. We need to practice and live those distinctions. Now, when you practice distinctions without the substance of God, you know what you get? The Pharisees. Next slide. Distinctives point people back 
to God. Not being like them. We don't draw people to God because we're like people, or we behave by them, or we order things the way they do. We draw people to God because we are distinct, set apart, God's people. When we lose those distinctions, the second point, we quit pointing people to God. Our world, the people we come across, the people we know, those who live in our community, need God's life-giving distinctions now more than ever. We have to live them. We have to share them. We need to teach them. We have to be distinct from the death of the world's approach and views. Where else is the, is, is the world going to look for answers in people that look just like them or act just like them or talk just like them or think just like them? We have to be distinct from the death of the world's approach and views. Listen to this passage in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Come out and be separate, perfecting holiness. Like, like, don't get confused. I'm not talking about being weird or odd, like whatever, like, that comes natural to some of us, right? I'm talking about God's distinctions by the power of God, separating ourselves from the world, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Man, I tell you, though, we have some Christian androgyny going on. Losing the distinctiveness that God has intended his church to have his people to have. Losing the distinction of the pure message of Jesus Christ and the power of God's word and the role of the church. What was the line? Like, our only boast in the cross, right? The devil has seldom done a more clever thing than hinting to the church that part of her mission is to provide entertainment for the people as a means to winning them. Tickling their ears. Losing the message. The gospel begins to be sidelined by assorted fads. One of them is the seeker model of church. 
Let's make our services so non-offensive. Like, I already lost that, right? Like I said, homosexuality is sin. Didn't I say that? I'll say it again. Homosexuality is sin, right? Our message is offensive. In fact, in John 12, Christ says, I came to separate families because of his message and truth. So your role is not to do everything you can to make peace in the family. You lost your distinctiveness. So the secret model says, let's make our services so non-offensive and attractive to non-believers so they can feel welcomed and then drawn to God. That's the theory. Sounds good. But, but you know what? There are no seekers. Romans 3.11, there is none that seeks God. It is God that draws them with his spirit by the message. Like the, the spirit doesn't work apart from the word. He preach the truth. The spirit can work. The sword of the spirit, how he does battle. The Spirit doing that, right? Like John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not a job to make the message so attractive. It's our job to make the message so grounded in truth of the cross that it's distinct from the message the world hears and the Spirit can work to draw them. To God. Charles Spurgeon said, yeah, like 120 years ago, he said, Are we feeding the sheep or amusing the goats? Western evangelicalism tends to run through cycles of fads. At the moment, books are pouring off presses telling the church how to plan for success. <laughs> success, right? That's the church's goal is success. How it must have vision, clearly articulated ministry, goals, and on it goes. Even so subtle that we start to think that success more critically depends on thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel. Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on plans, programs, branding. Vision statements. I fear that the cross, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. Like peripheral thoughts or insights like take on too much weight. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Not attractive. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the clever, the clever cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, d- who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. Not attractive, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Saved and unsaved. Now, there may be people who the Spirit's drawing, who've shown interest, who are asking questions, or showing up. But they don't get across the, for lack of a better non-theological term, they don't get across the finish line without us being clear on the message of Christ as a centrality of who we are and what they need because of their sin. This is a simple message. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of cross alone has a power to set people free. Excuse me. At Corinth, the danger was not that they were adding to or taking away from the content of the gospel. Rather, they were using human wisdom in an attempt to make the gospel more appealing or more effective or more attractive. You can fill in the blanks. You know, Paul is clear. When we stick to the word of God, we find out it is what God uses. Sometimes there are people breaking down the doors to get in. You can't get everybody in. But sometimes it's very thin. But that shouldn't change our distinctive. But we can't make our message or what we do determine by what we think will attract more churchgoers or unbelievers. Just like in our personal lives, we can't lose the distinction because we don't want to offend or lose out or be shamed or not be part of the crowd. Thirdly, holiness is our living. Next slide. We're just going to take a look at this passage in our Bible. In the first chapter of Peter, he has unfolded something of the wonders of our salvation and God's grace in providing that salvation. His sovereignty in that salvation. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And from the dead, and on he goes. We see all three members of the triune God involved in our salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. On the basis, Peter now moves in to talk about how we should live. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Next slide, please. There's two commands, and I'll mention those to you first. The first command is in verse 13. The command is, fix your hope. 
These are sharp, strong commands. Fix your hope. The second command in verse 13, verse 15, is be holy. Fix your hope. Be holy. Based on all that Christ's work in a culture against us, Peter says, the two primary commands you have are fix your hope and be holy. So these are the two commands. Everything in this passage are built around these two commands. Look at verse 13. Therefore, right, because of what he has unfolded in the salvation God has provided for us and accomplished in the previous verses, here is what you are to do. Prepare your minds for action. This is what we are doing. Like, right now, we're preparing our minds for action. Meaning, gird the loins of your mind is what it says. Right, the pictures from that oriental practice, right, where they had to take up their robe, tuck, maybe tuck it in their belt, because they were going to do work. Right, otherwise they'd be tripping over. So, but this is your mind. The picture is what, get your mind ready for action, for work. Gird the loins of your mind, right? Like, what is he saying? We are to be ready for strenuous mental work. You know, one of the ways the devil weakens the church is he makes it shallow. And so believers think, for example, you come to church, time for relaxation, been sitting back after a hard week, I'm not going to have to work too hard, I'm not going to concentrate too much, I've I've been doing that all week, I just want to be able to relax. Have a break. Have maybe an encouraging, easy-to-listen-to message. And then a little light entertaining. And I'm on my way. Pretty soon, believers lose their ability to think seriously and strenuously about biblical matters. And then what? How do we grapple seriously with the word to be prepared? Here he tells us, Gird your minds for action. Get ready for work. You prepare mentally for vigorous spiritual work. It's amazing the way the devil works. He lays the groundwork that we just get soft mentally. And you know our world prepared us for that. Like everything ought to be quick two-minute sound bites. Nobody can pay attention anymore. You know, we're, we're told that people won't sit and listen to 20-minute sermons anymore. You're blessed, right? Like, you might get two to three of those today when I'm preaching. I realize that stretches some people. Like, people, like, not used to that, like, I thought he would never get done. Preachers are being told to make the sermons like TED Talks. Man, that's not what Peter's saying. Like, we're not here for a little soundbite. Just throw out a tidbit, right? Decorate it with a few stories, a couple good illustrations, something humorous. Just send us on your way. We had a nice, relaxing time. Like, I just feel like a little bit, a little refreshed, like a nice nap. This is not nap time. This is work time. And we need to be careful that we are disciplining our minds, getting ourselves ready, 
train our children. Like, we ought to develop our mind. I'm concerned we're raising a generation that doesn't think seriously. Hard thinking. Reading books that make them go, what does that mean? We're wanting to entertain. Like, let's keep the kids entertained. How will we have biblical Christianity? How will the next generation have biblical, like, because it's not an adjective, like, biblical meaning based on the Bible and its truth. Biblical Christianity. Here God says, we are to prepare our minds for action. The second part in verse 13 is keep sober, right? Like, we're primarily used not being drunk, right? But here it is used to that mental alertness. We have our minds under control. Some people find it hard. They sit down and their mind is gone. Like I had somebody the other day tell me about some of their family history and all these names of people. And pretty soon I realized I have a headache and I am so lost. But like, we have like we need to concentrate. Some people sit down and their mind is gone, right? It's wandering. You know, I have to control my mind. Be alert mentally. We regard what comes into our minds. We prepare our minds and the discipline of our minds is a regular process to be able to do the work that is mentally required. I don't know where the church goes with the lightness that the church is leaning into. Watered-down messages. Watered-down music that are packaged into what is an attractive worship music service for success. The study of the Word of God is work, and you know that. It takes discipline of mind to stay on focus, to concentrate. The devil arranges his world differently, right? It's not just a cultural thing, right? That's just the way people are these days. It's intentional. It's the devil leading us away from the centrality of Scripture. Young people today go, well, how do you know what the Bible means? You study it. You rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten it for you, to guide you. You meditate on it. mean, you take something and you think about it and you ask the Spirit to help you understand it. You think through what it can mean, how it applies. But we don't like, like that's what the world, right? Like, they... they the devil is leading us away from the central, uh, centrality of Scripture. But we don't operate according to the world. We're God's people. We're distinct. We have the Word of God. What He has given us here, He expects and requires us to learn. It is not a course we can flunk. This is necessary for our life. So be sober. Now the command. Right? Like, so understand that, gird your minds... Be sober. Or these first two statements are what are called, are you ready for this? Participles in grammar. They're verbal adjectives. Right? They're not the command. Right? It's like, while girding your loins, 
making sure you're sober, they modify the main verb. The command is fix your hope. So while, like, getting to work, while being alert to the study of God's word, fix your hope. Because you know your hope. Fix your hope. Necessary to fix in your hope through obeying the command is you are prepared for work mentally and you are sober. You've got your mind organized. You're hearing the preaching of the word of God with all its impact and power. So you have to fix your hope. That means you have to be disciplined to keep your attention where it ought to be. Fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, that's what Peter had talked about in the previous verses of chapter 1. We've been born again, verse 3 says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now fix your hope completely on that hope. The living hope that goes to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1, 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. This hope, you greatly rejoice in the work of Christ that gave you hope, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Like, that's our world. The world is anti-Christianity. Removing the distinctions against you, want to shame you, want to eradicate you. You don't get distracted by those, by the various trials. And your mind doesn't get all confused. Why? Because we've disciplined it for work. To sort through those things that our hope is not in how our life is going day to day. So fix your mind completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ, we focus on that. That is not all we focus on, but the other things now are put into perspective of that. The present discipline of my mind, being sober-minded, recognizing how the trials of this life are answered by the word of God and hope. That is part of the discipline we need to have. We've been told where we are going. We have confidence and rest assured that Christ's work takes us there. Now our lives are arranged around it. It takes work. It takes discipline. That's what Peter's saying. Now verse 14. The second command. As obedient children, right? Like the children of obedience. That is to be the defining characteristic of us. We are God's children. We are children of obedience. We need to have the discipline to obey him. Verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, like the set-apart one who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. The sovereign call of God, like the Holy One who called you. He he references 1 Peter chapter 1, your election. So like the Holy One who called you, And note, God is the standard, like the Holy One who called you, our standard, just like Him, like the One who called you to be holy. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. 
to believers to be holy. That, that is our goal. We're holy in him, set apart for himself. But that holiness is to express itself. That is why he gives the instruction, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Show the distinctiveness of God and you as God's people in all your behavior. It is characterized us in all we do. Every part of our lives included in this. What's the support for it? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness, the very nature of God. We go back to Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. You shall be holy, for I am holy. I am your God. You are my people. You will be set apart, distinct, because I am set apart and distinct, and I am your God. True holiness begins in the salvation he's provided in Christ and our faith in that. That's when we are set apart by God for himself. And now we live lives set apart for him. We are saints, holy ones. We are living sanctified lives, holy lives. That is the point. You shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, people like to talk a lot about the love of God. And God is love. But while we would not in any way minimize the love of God and our command, the new command we have to love, we ought to understand that God is a holy God. And he calls, demands his people to be holy. The world needs this holy God and his holy people. They need the cleansing from God through the work of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Like, there's a very familiar passage in Isaiah 6, right? In Isaiah chapter 6, we find out what the proclamation of heaven is in the presence of God. Isaiah has a vision, beginning in verse 1. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and one called out to one another. Verse 3 said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What impact does this have on Isaiah? Verse 5. He says, woe is me. Seeing the holiness of God makes him realize what a sinner he is. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I see the God set apart, holy. And the response of Isaiah is, I'm a sinner. I need rescued from this sin. And then one is sent with a coal from the altar. One of the seraphim. Right, with tongs, takes a coal and touches his mouth. It's an act of God to the sinner. That's the only way the sinner gets redeemed. 
your iniquity. Isaiah's told your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. The problem is that all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, his holiness. And people don't like hearing that. It's foolishness. Where are we left? Only he can provide that which can cleanse me. Cleansing must come from him. Isaiah is not told, well, go work it out. <laughs> work it out, right? Do better. Come back, right? We'll see if you are any better, any more holy. No. The provision for cleansing must come from God. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Those around you need to see what is different about God and his people from the foolish emptiness of the world in which they are caught and their minds are caught. They need to see and hear the truth of God so God can draw them. Then they can cry out like Isaiah. We need to double down on being distinct. Not being like the world. Being God's people. So we're looking at what to be as his people in a culture that is a war on God's distinctions. Don't get distracted. Have your mind disciplined. Keep sober in your thinking. Be doing the disciplines. Men and women at work. Of studying the word of God. Of taking it in. Of disciplining your body to live in the power of the spirit. In obedience to Christ. With a fixed hope in a hostile culture. This is what Peter is challenges as believers to do. Live in the distinctives that make us God's people. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your word. Powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing asunder, bone and marrow. Written that may be, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And may that good work draw us to your holiness and the way in which we can be set apart as your people. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.